Talk, Season 5 of the Telly Award-winning podcast. Loving you like Spam loves eggs, like Prince loves purple, like Milton loves his red swing line stapler. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo Warden, creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Bandrex, and Napa Shang Origins. Still on Kickstarter, maybe? The other voice in the dark, the man on the box to the left is... David Avalone, uh, writer of comics and television and uh, picture postcards. Nice. Uh, I just did that entire intro with a cough drop in my mouth, and so I probably sounded a little bit weird. But Mazel tov. No, that I, was, I was undetectable. <laughs> undetectable. I think I pulled it off. Um, was it a it, Ricola? Was it a Vicks? Uh, it was a Hall's cough and throat relief. That's um, pretty. That's pretty classic. Yeah, it is. I think so. I, 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 yeah, I like the red cherry mediciney flavor sure. uh, i remember i wonder what happened to the smith brothers oh wow okay. you remember the smith brothers are you yeah. old enough for the smith brothers uh yeah you know it's um i'm it's pretty sure that was just candy like yeah sure i don't know that that had any medicinal <laughs> sorry I guess. basically a, a red gummy bear with a little uh menthol in it i think was the whole uh the whole plan right there yeah 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 it's a shame they went out of business uh if you missed any of our previous conversations about cough drops uh, uh, about comics uh, uh, featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, Rodney Barnes, and many, many more. Our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, uh, via Apple Pods, and via uh, other purveyors of worthwhile ear crack. So double on back and check it all out. Um, we have a, uh, a, a great guest, one of my neighbors, um, a fellow Michigan Wolverine. Uh, but do you have uh, some things to plug before we, um, we get to in, it? In the month of December, I don't have, I think, anything to plug. Uh, what have I got coming? Uh, in February, I've got um, Elvira meets H.G. Lovecraft um, and, and hijinks in, ensue. And in on April 3rd, Drawing Blood, co-created by me and Kevin Eastman, will be coming from Image Comics, and I'm very excited about that. I think we're getting that solicit in today. So that's good news. That's good, good news, and and, and 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 you have a gift for writing solicits. So uh, I look forward. Thank to you. I I remember the good. first time I realized that I didn't have to write them uh, in bland advertising speak. Yeah, I think it was the third issue I ever wrote, and they asked for a solicit. I wrote a completely ridiculous one and it was approved by everyone on oh these can be funny and interesting instead of it was is for us it was from a, a steampunk comic and the last line in the solicit was and everybody is wearing goggles for some unfathomable reason there you go and uh i was like oh okay cool if these can have a voice then i guess we can make them more interesting than just yeah you know Iron it, Man it, fights on. Yeah, in fact, you'll be rewarded because yeah. you know, com comic shop owners are trying to figure out what they want to order, and yeah. if you make them chuckle, then yeah, they'll that's... probably buy a couple of copies of your book. That would that was the general idea. But uh, yeah. what you got going on? Um, well, I, you know, I have a feeling that this is going to be our last episode of the year, right? Um, does that? Yeah, sound about I right mean, this will drop next. What is it? Eight. Nine, I'm looking at my calendar. This will drop on the thirteenth. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I'm wondering. And, uh, so you, 
Yeah. Yeah. So you probably still have a day or two to um, hop over to Kickstarter and get uh, issue two of my Wuxia Kung Fu Epic Fa Sheng Origins, um, which is available via the Immortal Studios uh, uh, Kickstarter. Uh, a lot of other great books um, in that mix. Uh, books from Charlie Stickney, friend of the show, um, Jen Troy, uh, just, just a lot of great art and a lot of great ass kicking Kung Fu action and important, uh, political, social, uh, cultural commentary, uh, content over there. So, uh, go check it out at the very least. I think you're going to find something that you like. Um, if you are listening to this, uh, uh, you know, in the new year, um, you should be able to find the pre-launch page at that point for uh, issues three and four of The Peacekeepers, my Fargo-esque uh, crime drama um, that is dropping finally after um, I took a long uh, film and CG yeah. hiatus. Um, yeah, so um, so it's good. Uh, it's going to be available very soon, so run over there and check it out. But we're talking too much. Let's bring on... Nice. Uh, we got more interesting people in the wings. Welcome, so let's do Jessica. Hi everyone. Um, I'm just. How's it going? Good, good. good. Tell um, the kids at home a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, I'm a writer of comics and books and short stories and an occasional screenplay. So yeah. Nice. I have to ask about the King Kong poster. Oh yeah. The well, 19- King. <laughs> well, this is my first. I'm like can't point. Um, yeah. King Kong is a longtime obsession of mine. Um, in the night of the original black and white one was probably one of my first monster movies that I ever watched with my father. And I was like, I'm not scared. I'm not scared. I was probably like five. And I had one of the worst nightmares of my life that night. Um, (laughs) And, and then I I love this King Kong. This poster was given to me from a friend, her dad, when he passed, he used to um, own this, like all these collectibles. He had a shop um, with all these great posters, all this great stuff. And she gifted it to me because of my obsession. So I have another one out in my living room and yeah. So King Kong 1933. Yeah. uh, When it was first picked up by my local television station, Mm -hmm. WOR New York, they ran it every day for five days. Oh my God. It was one of my father's (laughs) favorite movies from his childhood. I guess he was nine when it came out. Mm-hmm. And I think he actually made me stay home from grade school to watch it one day. That's cute. It's like and an it event, a, yeah. And it was a life-changing experience. Uh, the one thing I will, if, if for sheer, if you enjoy this kind of thing, I recommend everyone go to the, the Wikipedia King Kong page and scroll down to copyright issues because it is a <laughs> roller coaster. The oh. copyright issues of the King Kong franchise. They failed to... Uh, they failed to copyright the film novelization oh. in 1933. And novelizations were such a new and unusual thing. They just didn't copyright the book, which means virtually everything in the original King Kong is technically in the public domain. Oh, wow. Interesting. That and then they sold like a portion of those rights to Toho so they could <clears throat> make Godzilla movies with King Kong. And <clears throat> that's actually the portion that's the monarch monster verse right now. They actually bought the Japanese Kong rights, which are not the same as the 1933. It's that, it's hilarious a, and sad and yeah. ridiculous, and it's why you've seen so many weird-ass iterations of uh, King Kong over the years. Well, then I guess I'm grateful for it. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like all the weird-ass versions of it, for sure. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I watched the, the 1933 version in the Egyptian theater, and it was 
like nice. I was crying in it. It was just yeah. really, yeah, it was really great. So I think one of the things that is underestimated about that movie and was life changing for me is that it's about a, it's about an artist. It's about a filmmaker mm -hmm. who is trying to make a commercial. He's trying to make a slightly more commercial version of what he usually does and ends up with this insane monster adventure. Um, and my, my final essay in film in college was a comparison between 1933 King Kong and Fellini's Eight and a Half, where I say they're essentially the same movie, which my film professors enjoyed. They're both about a man setting out to make a movie, which he, in the universe of the movie, he fails to make. But of course, the movie he keeps talking about making is the movie that he told you he was making at the beginning of the movie. You know, That's the true. Beauty and the yeah. Beast monster movie in the case of Carl Denham. Yeah. But yeah, Carl just seemed so... Uh, just in love with the process of making films. And I think that really like lodged in my brain when I was a kid that you could be, you could have this job that was just like the most exciting thing in the world, you know? But anyway, that's that's well, my own, my own tongue. Good. Yeah, no, it's funny what sticks, that's what stuck with you and what sticks with me is like how we as humans um, like to go into nature and mess it up. <laughs> Yeah. you know and bring it bring it home and to our own dis destruction and its destruction so yeah, yeah. and i think it, yeah. i think one of the funnier things about that particular work and that mm -hmm. franchise is the first movie allows for a complexity of character that mm -hmm. no other movie adaptation of that material does yeah. it's when when you know king kong is the good guy before you sit down to make your movie yeah. you telegraph it <laughs> uh cooper and show zach Never telegraph it. The minute the machine gun bullets hit Kong and he winces, for the first time in 90 minutes, you go, oh, this yeah. is all just a terrible, sad, tragic thing that didn't need to happen, and they're just murdering a wild animal. Exactly. Whereas every other version, Kong is soft from the beginning because the filmmakers know that's where the story is going. Yeah. As opposed to it being like, Oh shit! This is a punch in the guts. I've been on the wrong side of this thing the whole time, <laughs> you know. Which is to me, it's it's better writing. But no. how did you uh, how did you come into comics? Were you in film first, or? Um. Yeah, I was. I came out here and did film, and I pro didn't get into comics till I got pregnant with my first child, and um, I went to San Diego Comic Con, and. I, I mean, I always liked comics, don't get me wrong, but I didn't get into making comics until then. And I went and just checked everything out. And I talked to one of my artist friends and said, let's make a comic. And I, at that time, wanted to make a comic set in the world of sex trafficking with a supernatural vigilante, kind of more like in the Batman darkness kind of realm. And um, But I partnered with a muralist um, because mm. we both just wanted to learn the medium. And so Pistol came out of that, which was my first comic series. And it only has two issues. We have five completed, but I have to go through them all and kind of reimagine their launch because we went on major pause during COVID for that series. But yeah, that's how I initially got into comics is I just started learning it. Um, I fell in love with it all over again and really wanted to make a comic and kind of just dived into it and self-taught myself to do it with the help of just watching a lot of people, reading a lot of comics, you sure. know, just talking to people. What, what had been your favorite comics before you got into it? Um, my favorite comic, like way back when, from when I was in college was 
the preacher, which I know is weird, <laughs> but uh, that was like my favorite way, like from when I first started getting it because, and the reason it was my favorite was it was the first time I read a comic um, that I realized comics could do something in totally different than what I yeah. thought they could do. Cause when I was a kid, I read Archie and wonder woman and sure. you know, all those, they were in my grandma's um, attic. And so I would find them and I would read them. Um, and then the preacher was the first one that I read that I said, wow, this can really be a medium where you talk about important things and you challenge sure. um, important issues. And then, I mean, that did not remain my favorite comic for all time, but, sure. um, and then I, I mean, I think at the time when I was looking at comics, I was really, I'm pretty much into almost any image comic. I mean, those are my favorites. And um, the one that really kind of motivated me to do my own thing was uh, Megan Hutchinson is uh, like an indie comic artist. And she did, uh, um, oh my gosh, I'm going to, it's a, it's got a wisp in it. My brain is totally blanking right now, unfortunately. Um, and I saw her, um, it was a dark uh, mystery about, you know, uh, this young girl whose parents um, eat poison mushrooms and die. And then she goes into this dark mystery and I, I just loved it. And I said, I want to make something like that. And that kind of led me into the Mary Shelley world, you yeah. know? So yeah. It, 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 it is funny. The, um, uh, how many of us <laughs> filmmakers yeah. uh, end up in this medium and, and, mm -hmm. you know, to, to a degree, it makes sense because we have this, we have this visual storytelling education, so so it uh, it happens very naturally. I think. Also, I think um, we come to Hollywood to make film and TV, and uh, and and it becomes very hard to to tell stories. Period. Here, but sp specifically to tell the stories we want to tell here, right? Because the, yeah. the the you know what you can do in Hollywood, you can basically put on a postage stamp, and so we end up breaking out in different ways. But it, but it's just interesting because. Um, I mean, we, we haven't broached the topic yet. We're, you know, we're about 15 minutes into this. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you and I went to uh, film school at, at the University of Michigan together. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, and so we should cover that. And we both moved out here around the same time and endured the same trials and tribulations. And we both ended up in Eagle Rock somehow when we yeah. both ended up making comics. And, um, and, and, and at some point we were like, hey, we've had the same life trajectory. Maybe we should sit down and have coffee and talk about it and become friends. Exactly. Um, that's funny. The other thing is you pull Megan Hutchinson out of your back pocket. I, <laughs> I, I went to AFI with Megan Hutchinson. Oh, that's crazy. Who was a brilliant production designer uh, at, at the American Film Institute. And, and, and if she, if she's so desired right now, uh, could, could be among the very best working production designers in Hollywood. Um, I don't know her story. Um, she went through the same meat grinder at AFI that I did, and mm -hmm. and 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 I assume, uh, um, I assume she got fed up with a lot of the shit she was dealing with in Hollywood, and was such a talented artist in general that she found a different way to tell stories, uh, and, and to tell them brilliantly. So, um, I just think that's funny. I think yeah. that um, and, and, and Avalonia is a very similar story. Avalonia's on a different timeline than us, but Avalonia yeah. was an independent filmmaker for years. And ends up uh, in this weird boat with us. So, well, yeah. um, and the cool thing about Megan is she is super talented, and she, but she's also super compassionate and an amazing person. Like she was one of the first booths I stopped at with yeah. uh, my daughter, <clears throat> and my daughter just fell in love with her art. I fell in love with her art. Um, you know, she during the uh, 2016 and all like the protests and everything, she she made some really cool images that she made free for everyone that you could print and use in the protests. And I definitely did that and reached out to her and, 
it, yeah, amazing artist. And I mean, I didn't talk to her about her AFI times, but yeah, I'm sure it, she had a similar frustration and yeah. wanted to do um, some great. And I, I highly re recommend her art. It's and and her work. It's really great. So yeah. No. That is funny, though. I mean, yeah. And the weird thing about it is we were at University of Michigan together, and I don't think we had a class. Did we have any classes? I don't. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a big yeah. university. No, that's right. It, yeah. Yeah. And so some of yeah. those th some of those things you end up in like a history of film class, and there yeah, are so a couple hundred people on there. And um and uh, yeah yeah. And so, I came yeah. and I came into film late because I hadn't didn't go to school for film initially. I went just yeah. I wanted to write books and. Uh, work with young people who had been homeless and stuff like that. And then I took a screenwriting class and it just ruined my life. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. It didn't ruin my life. I fell in love with it and I'm glad I did. And I got, yeah. I got a scholarship to study political science. I was oh, going nice. to be, a, I was going to be a political operative and, um, and then uh, <laughs> quickly I, ran away from that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, politics was always ugly. Yeah. Um, but it was, it, it was making the turn uh, mm -hmm. towards now. Uh, yeah. and becoming an even uglier and more contradictory uh, uh, quagmire um, yeah. uh, than it already was. And um, yeah, I kind of fucking had a catastrophic breakdown and, um, uh, you know, was was staring at another uh, semester of poli-sci and soch and uh, working campaigns and all of that shit, decided that I couldn't do that. Yeah. Uh, so I dropped all of my classes uh did the like cliche of walking around campus all night and i'm gonna date the both of us but um okay. at se at 7 a.m uh when daily the telephone registration uh, uh system opened back up <laughs> uh uh i walked back into my dorm room uh i grabbed a course guide and i i had i had no thoughts in my head really other than i'm going to look through this and I'm going to figure out what makes me happy. And I, mm -hmm. I registered for two phone classes, uh, an art history class, an environmental science class. And a few years later, um, I uh, graduated graduated with a triple major in uh, film, theater, and art history. Oh, wow. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> Yeah, yeah and, we, I mean, we're similar it, beasts. That's for there's, sure. There's a lot to be said for having an interest outside of the one thing that you do. Yeah. I think you end up making such airless works, and you know, I will say when I went to college, I expected, I I was studying film, but I expected that I would be concentrating outside of film on probably literature, and I found myself less and less interested in analyzing works of literature that also seemed kind of it's like i i'm fine talking about a book i'm fine breaking one down it's i have a whole podcast where i do that uh called pulp today but um i didn't feel like that was a thing i needed a lot more learning in whereas when i took my first uh you know you have a, a math science requirement and i took a history of science class as my requirement uh, History of Science 101 had a life-changing great professor for me who uh, one of the first things he said in class was we, you're told that there's this wall between the humanities and the sci sciences and it's nonsense. There is no wall. It's all one thing. Science is just people writing cosmologies. It's not, you know, there's poetry, there's art, there's, you know, and if you don't know anything about the history of the world or how people have seen the world... All art does is represent how people see the world at the time that it's made. 
and how people see the world at the time it's made is science mm -hmm. and religion. Uh, and I thought that was a fascinating, fascinating. He was the first, you know, uh, Steve Martin went on to write a play about it, but he was really the first person I ever had read who said, Einstein and Picasso don't, cubism and atomic theory come along at the same time for a reason. They're interrelated yeah. ways of seeing the world. And Einstein's way of seeing the world and Picasso's way of saying, seeing the world, there's a reason they're contemporaries of each mm -hmm. other. And I thought that was a fascinating. So I ended up to the degree that I had a, mo a minor at college. I was an epistemology minor. I was a minor in the history of ideas and how they develop. And holy shit has that ended up in every fucking thing I've ever written yeah. since 1987. <laughs> like there, there is not just because like I've written history, I've written period stuff. I've written about science. I've written about mythology and all that, but just as an overall way of fine tuning how I looked at the world and how I approached the very idea of knowledge and ideas mm -hmm. and how they develop. That was so much more useful to me than writing you know, a 20 page essay on Henry James that everyone else has written in the history of mankind. Like the, yeah. the world didn't need one more uh, Jewish intellectual kid writing about lit literature. I think, I think we're, we're, we're good on that. And uh, you know, it was, it was, it was very useful to me. And I, I, I always think you can tell when someone is writing movies about other movies they've seen or writing comic yeah. books about other comic books they've read and not interested in the life experience of actual human beings. Uh, a lot of Barton mm -hmm. thinks out there uh, <laughs> writing about experiences they've had, they haven't had in worlds they've never lived in. Yeah. Um, I wanted to uh, also put a little, uh, a, a, a little top hat on the idea of what you said about preacher. Cause I think that's also an important moment in the development of anyone in the professional arts is generally you grow up with an idea of what is a thing you can what you can do in the arts yeah mm -hmm. and king kong was my favorite movie for most of my childhood and uh i think the first fellini movie i saw was la dolce vita mm -hmm. and i sat there for two and a half hours of that running time going what is he what is this even a how is he gonna <laughs> wrap this up what is the narrative ending? There's no narrative ending to this story. There's no plot here, but it's fantastic. And it reflects real life. And when we end up with the sea monster after the orgy party on the beach, you go, yep, that's the end. I don't know what the <laughs> hell we just went through, but was that meaningful? And, uh, yeah. and it had that same effect on me that Preacher had on you, where you go, oh, I can make movies about how people live it doesn't have to be detectives and car chases and drama you know it doesn't have to be manufactured it can be i was when first time i saw a uh, uh, la dolce vita and someone asked me what it was or what it was like i said imagine someone making apocalypse now but it's about cocktail parties <laughs> it's like a three hour long grueling grueling cinemascope epic that's mostly about people drinking martinis and having a terrible time. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's a hell of a thing to pull off. So there are these th there are these things that you experience. There are two categories uh, mm -hmm. of this that I find, and there are the things that that show you how far you can you can push a medium. The the interesting corners you can push push it into. The 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 things you can deal with, like the uh, the aspirational stuff, and then there. 
there are the the pieces of art that make it feel possible. From a filmmaking standpoint, I watched movies my whole life, right? It was, it, you know, I mean, for me, I didn't have I, I didn't have a lot of adults taking care of me growing up. Um, didn't have a lot of good role models around me. You know, grew up in a housing project in Detroit, and it, it, if I followed the lead of those around me, I, I wouldn't be here right now, right? I, I, I a lot of trouble there. Um, the only place I saw role models, the only place, you know, the place where I learned honor and, uh, and, 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 and rules and saw love regularly and all of these things was on TV or in movies. And so intense love affair, right? Um, you know, I learned how to be a man from Captain Picard, uh, uh, from Sam Malone and, and not necessarily from people around me. So, so, so that was already instilled in me, right? I mean, I was already headed in this direction, but I remember, you know, uh, it never occurred to me that that filmmaking or comic making was a reasonable profession. There, you know, the the there weren't people yeah. where, I, where I grew up that did this, right? Um, but you know, I remember it, it was two films for me. I saw Clerks, mm -hmm. um, and you know, Clerks is it, Clerks is charming and and whatever. You know, it's not the greatest film that has ever been made, but I watched it and I said, this is doable. This guy, this guy took a credit card yeah. <laughs> and 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 borrowed some money from from here or there and and had literally a shoestring uh, uh, budget and he grabbed his friends and he convinced the uh, the guy that owned the uh, the the liquor store that he worked at to let him shoot you know on nights and weekends and he made a film and yeah. the the film is good and it is about something uh, I can do this so there was that. I mean, it, it, it's like I, whole, whole, whole I, oh, no, 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 I totally agree with you about yeah. clerks because I had a similar yeah. experience with clerks. I watched yeah. it and I was like, oh, OK, yeah. like, you know, you can take a good script and you can you can write. You have to think about it before you yeah. write it, you know, and yeah. you can write a low budget script that can say something and accomplish it. As yeah, it, it, yeah. It, yeah. But anybody so, can do this. Anybody can start climbing the ladder. But then there was the other thing for me. I saw Pulp Fiction and I oh, said, yeah. not, not only do I want to <laughs> do this, not only do I think I can do this, this, this is what I want to do. This is the sort of expo exploration I want to start to. I want to pull narratives apart. I want to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I want to do something more complex. I want to, yeah. I, I want to push the medium. And, and that was really interesting. And I think I, you know, the, uh, a similar, I have a, I have a similar comic story too, where it was, you know, um, I was one of the buffoons that got pulled into a comic shop uh, uh, via the death of Superman. Everybody had to go out and get their copy of the death oh, of yeah. Superman. Um, and I got mine. Um, and I still have mine around here somewhere. Um, and that pulled me in That's worth but, at least a dollar fifty. There you go. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, there, there's that. But but it was a great time to get pulled into a comic shop because the image revolution was happening. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and 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 like you, it was it was it was preacher was one of the books, uh, and one hundred bullets was one of the books mm -hmm. um, that just showed you what what could happen. And and I I um, I thankfully had a there was a really great. Uh, a comic shop owner, this guy Dave at, at Comics Corner uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in Fraser, Mich Michigan. Shout out, the, the store is still there. Um, uh, go pay him a visit. And he's like, hey, you know, that's fine. Why don't you check this out? And why don't you check that out? And, and, and you know, he introduced me to, to, to Demon in a Bottle. You know, he's like, you know, they, they made Iron Man and alcoholic <laughs> in the 70s. <laughs> you know, um, holy shit, you can do that in comics? Yeah. Um, uh, and, 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 and so, so I, I think it's, 
I think we all, you know, again, we, we all have similar stories. It's like the variables yeah. are different, but the equation is, is, is yeah. the same. These and things that make it feel possible and make it feel, you know, aspirational, incredible, all that stuff. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just agreeing. With, I mean, I, we all yeah. have a friend like my, we actually, you actually know my friend who's the one who got me into lots of different kinds of comics is TJ Hamilton, who I yeah, went yeah. to University of Michigan with too. He's always, he buy a comic and they give it to me like, Jesse, read this, Jesse, read yeah. this, Jesse, read this. Yeah. And he, so he's like one of, I would call my, you know, professor of comics almost, yeah. you know. Thank everybody God for the, led, everybody led needs, me down that rabbit hole. Thank God for the TJs. Yeah, yeah right, everybody needs TJs. those. I'm, you know, I'm a little older than you guys and I, but everybody mm -hmm. needs those ambassadors. Uh, you know, it's nice when you, sometimes you find a thing by yourself. Yeah. I was in a library and saw a record album that said the goon show with Peter Sellers. And that's how I discovered a hidden corner of British comedy history that was available to me nowhere else. And no one, no one explained it to me. I had to figure out what the goon show was all about all by yeah. myself. And I was watching Monty Python on PBS and I went, Oh, this is like 10 years before that. Yeah. This is what, these original Monty Python guys are guys who listened to this when they were in college and wanted to do something like it. But then I had a great friend, a few years older, named Mike Weiss. Mm -hmm. And in the 70s, I was a huge fan of Star Wars and the Star Wars comics. And there was a, the Micronauts was sort of like the, the, another Marvel Star Wars riff. And uh, I had an older friend named Mike Weiss who got frustrated listening to me hear about how great the Micronauts was, which is full of Jack Kirby uh, homages. Mm. And he handed me a stack of the fourth world comics, the Jack Kirby, the new gods, Mr. Miracle, the forever people, even, I think he even had some of the Jimmy Olsen's that introduced dark side actually appears the first time in Jimmy Olsen, which I think is pretty hilarious. It's like, you know, Darth Vader showing up for the first time in an issue of Riverdale. Uh, but, but that's how it happened. That's Kirby sort of like, Oh, you gave me the dumbest book in DC. I'm going to introduce my cos cosmic epic in friggin' Jimmy Olsen. And you can't stop me from doing it. But I read those and they're still some of my favorite comics. And it completely rewrote how I saw all of that stuff, you know, and it's, uh, seeing seeing where it all comes from uh and it can be mind-blowing for people and some people you know want to resist the idea that uh their favorite comic was not you know burst out of the head of zeus and it's like no zeus read some jack kirby before he uh <laughs> before he birthed star wars he also watched a lot of akira kurosawa uh and we've all got those things and i always appreciate uh because artists can do that too i saw a great special on the making of of all things, Last Temptation of Christ. And Scorsese keeps showing clips from his movie and going, now, uh, this is this Bruegel painting that I completely recreated for the movie of the of the, the, of the death of Jesus. That's amazing. I'm, I just, I love this painting and I wanted to, you know, and he's absolutely transparent about, you know, and here's a Rembrandt that I really like the colors in. And I showed yeah. this to, to Michael Bauhaus or ever shot that picture, you know, so it's, <clears throat> Artists can do you such a favor when they footnote. Yes. And say, if was... you, yeah. If you love <laughs> my thing, go look up this thing. Yeah. Well, and I just went down a rabbit hole last night because I watched Saltburn, which uh, I'm still processing. But sure. um, I watched Saltburn last night and there's a, I went down the rabbit hole and she, she does a lot of that. You know, like there's paintings that inspired whole sections of the movie. There's Victorian 
writing that inspired some of the scenes and you know and it does feel you can feel that through the whole movie like all of her inspiration so it was fun to go back and look at did, it and did she talk about uh patricia highsmith at all because boy that trailer seemed very yeah she uh, did. I didn't, to not me. In, yeah right not in the article that I read, but I'm okay. sure at some point, yeah. I just, I mean, I haven't seen the movie, but just yeah. in the trailer, I went, this has got a kind of talented Mr. Ripley. It definitely, that was the there's first There's a Highsmith vibe going on in it. Yeah, and there's and there's a definitely some Victorian era short story that I'm trying to find, because after I read it, I was like, that definitely sounds like a short story I read. I mean, totally different, but it's yeah. very talented Mr. Ripley. Vibe it, it, yeah, well. it, yeah. It, it, yeah, and if we're talking about the creative process, you know, yeah. I, it, you, it, if you're a comic creator and you're, you're listening to this or a director or anything, it can be such an incredible way to communicate with your collaborators. It's funny you bring up uh, Patricia Highsmith, Avalone, because this this movie that I have coming out next year with, with Fernando Treba, this it's called haunted heart and um it uh, highsmith was his principal touchstone on it right okay. and 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 you know this was i mean god we we started writing this like 15 years ago but but he had been reading all this highsmith and he had this vision for the movie and 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 he needed to communicate that to me and and so he went to a bookstore and he bought me probably 10 patricia highsmith books and he's like uh read these read them in this order uh, focus on this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. And then we had this common language. And it's like, remember in yep. this book, we did this, remember in Ripley when they're on the boat and blah, 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 blah. Um, and, and, and we had this shorthand and I knew yep. exactly what he was looking for visually. Um, it came time to shoot it, you know, uh, 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 you know, years later and his cinematographer, like he's sitting on set and he's got, he's got Highsmith, you know, uh, in his back pocket. Um, uh, that was great. I mean, the, the the painting thing is really interesting. I remember when I was at the when I was at the LA Film School, I did a year long intensive in cinematography at the LA Film School between U of M and AFI, and uh, I, I shot a thesis and I had this ridiculous idea. It, it it seems a lot more ridiculous now than it did back then, but I I shot a film that took place in India. It was in Hindi with English subtitles, um, but I saw. The, I, and it was a um, it was an homage to the Apu trilogy, which it was an easy thing to to give a bunch of collaborators the Apu trilogy, uh, uh, you know, great black and white films. Um, but I had them filter the entire thing. Um, you know, uh, there was obviously going to be a Western influence to it because we had a bunch of people in in America, even though they were Indian Americans, but a bunch of people in America making it, uh, and, and 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 me directing it. Um, but we filtered it all through the paintings, uh, the portraiture of Lucian Freud. Mm. Um, and so, and so everybody, I, I bought everybody Lucian Freud books and we started thinking, uh, uh, in terms of this taking this movie taking place in the world of Lucian Freud's paintings, because all of the portraits, they, it's not our world. It's a very different world, a very grimy world. Mm. Um, and so everybody, everybody brought that to life. The costumer, uh, uh, the, it, there was this really interesting thing. It was the, the time I, the time that I knew that my unifying metaphor was working was when uh, the production designer who had to build a lot of India on a soundstage in Los Angeles. Um, uh, uh, so Lucian Freud had a lot of texture in his paintings. And mm -hmm. so the, so, so the, the film came to life texturally in a very interesting way, but uh, to, to produce the texture that he needed, he used to grind lead into his, into his paint. And we didn't want to use lead for obvious reasons, but if you actually go and see Lucian Freud paintings, you, you can kind of see it in the books, but you know, he would, he would paint a nose 
Uh, but the nose, you know, again, you, you have you have lead, you have like thick particulates in the paint, and so the nose would be built up. It would almost mm -hmm. be a physical nose, like growing out of the, uh, the 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 painting. But anyway, the the production designer fell so in love with this and the look of this and the feel of this that when she painted the sets, uh, she had her crew mix sand into the paint. Mm -hmm. And so you stepped onto the set, and it, it, and the sets felt like a physical manifestation of an environment in Lucian Freud painting. It was it was phenomenal. You know, and, yeah. and and never in a million years could I have stepped on and 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 told these uh, and told these people do this specifically, do this specifically, do this specifically. You know, uh, never in a million years would they have made the decisions they made if we did not have this like this this unifying metaphor. If, if I did not take them to a place with these paintings. Um, and, and it, it was magical, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. like as a director, one of the more magical experiences I've had. And 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 so 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 find your find, <laughs> find your inspiration your <laughs> yeah. and share it. Share it with everyone. Yes. Yeah. When I did uh, Elvira's Inferno, I wanted uh, Dave Acosta to reference the work of Gustave Doré because that's the hell I grew up with. The his illustrations for uh, the Divine Comedy. And he said, oh, just sent me the Jism JPEG. So I'm like, no, I got to buy you the book. Like, I sent him a copy of the book because I'm like, yeah. 10 JPEGs just ain't going to do it, man. This is, you know, this is a 300-page book with a lot of amazing illustrations in it. And uh, I want you to sort of see them in person and have them in front of you and mm -hmm. all of that. The most ridiculous shorthand thing that I can think of in my career is working with the composer. My favorite part of making a movie is working with the composer because it's the least stressful for me. They're going to solve the problems. I don't have to solve the problems. But I'm a film, I'm a giant film music nerd. And I was in a meeting with the director, the other producer, I was the producer, second producer, and the composer. And the movie had a little MacGuffin in it, like a Maltese Falcon called the Kung Fu Zangpo. And I said, write a, write a little motif for the Kung Fu Zangpo when we see it but don't go all cross of Coronado on it. And he, we both laughed mm -hmm. and the other two looked at us like, <coughs> what are you even talking about? And I said, in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, in the first sequence, there's a thing from the cross of Coronado called the cross of Coronado. And if you know film music, you know that Williams almost comically plays the same five notes every time Harrison Ford branches <laughs> it. You get that. Da, 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 da. I was like, so let's undo that. We don't have yeah. to do the don't have to do the cross. But the other two were like, what language are you guys talking? And I'm like, I knew he would, he's a John Williams fan. I knew he would know that incredibly deep cut reference to uh, a musical score. And, but, and and it belongs in a museum, man. It, it belongs does. in a museum. <laughs> I mean, it, I just watched rewatched Raiders of the Lost Ark at Vidiot's, um, and the big and it was. I don't think I had ever realized how intense that silly that music was. Sometimes, <laughs> I mean, I love that music, but yeah, whenever you touch something, you're like, okay, I get it. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, and what's funny sure. is I re I actually read about uh, Force Awakens that, mm -hmm. and it, you know, that even a guy like Jack John Williams has doubts about the popularity <laughs> of his own work that uh i wish i had a sandbag right now like, <laughs> that uh apparently jj abrams had to talk him into using the old themes mm. it's like oh i could write something new for han and leia and he's like 
uh, no, man, you have a you have a really good love theme from the Empire Strikes yeah, Back. Can we just we wanna... can we just have that back? Just let's just let's just have that back, John. And he's like, really? You think people want to hear that? And he was like, I can't we do. believe we do. I can't <laughs> believe you don't know that people want to hear your old musical themes. Like you know, literally, there will be people coming to this movie just to hear your music yeah. more than any other aspect of this. It's the yeah. one thing I know we have nailed in this yes. movie is that you're doing the music. So kindly, please replay your old Star Wars themes. I mean, you can understand why he wants to do something different. Oh, though, of course. Like that. But yeah, no, I mean, I had, when I did my, I did a feature film with Mike, we, uh, super low budget. And I now wish I had picked an artist and showed everyone the artwork, you know, but um, mm -hmm. the compo working with the composer was really an awesome experience. Um, Cause she's just this amazing, her name's Julia Holter and she's actually a, um, pretty established musician. And at the time we were working together in a, uh, high, at a high school, um, doing programming with like, um, kids in South LA and she was a tutor and she was a music instructor, but she was, but her career was starting to like take off. And I was like, I just did this short, I just did this feature film. I, you're perfect for it. You've got this cool, you know, she had the, and you know, I could reference her music, which was really great. Um, and then just to talk about kind of the film and show it to her. And you know she did our um, did our score, and then her next score that she did is with Martin Scorsese. So I nice, <laughs> very nice. I was yeah. like, you know, it was kind I of. I always cool. I always love that validation. Yeah. I, I made a short film. Well, that was a feature. I keep saying short, but it was yeah, a feature, I made a short yeah. film with Rhea Seahorn. Yeah, like five minutes before she got cast in Better oh. Call Saul, and I was like, we were right. She were was right. great. Yeah, no, <laughs> you know, like. We were we 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 had we we made a good call there about well, to know the, your instincts creatively are are accurate and you see something of yeah. value before you know uh, everyone else in the world sees it or you know but I think some people had seen her value before me but yeah. oh yeah no absolutely <laughs> yeah, yeah. but absolutely. um no but I agree that's always validating when you're because making creative choices I mean I don't know this is a different slightly what you just said but like making these creative choices. Um, you know, when you're leading a team or when you're like doing a short film, when you're doing a feature film, if you're doing a comic, you are reaching from all like the myth, all of your inspirations, all everything that's touched you. And then you do have to communicate it to a group of people and trusting your voice and trusting your choices is, I don't know, incredibly scary. Sometimes it's very exciting and like getting to a place where you just trust them and then it, and i think it's moments like what you're talking about rylan when it all kind of comes together in those moments or like a validating moment when you, you someone else follows a creative choice that you made and you know it's not you, it's like a lifetime of getting validated a little bit so that you know that you're the choices you're making for a project are in the right direction and i, I don't know if you guys struggle with that but that's always part of the adventure like um is my vision you know the you know, the vision for this project is, am I going and like figuring out how to validate that has always been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I, how, how do I communicate that to how collaborators? Yeah. And, 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 and you do it in a way where you're not dictating every decision they're making, but, exactly. but, but you give them the information they need to, to improve the product. You yes. know what I'm saying? Like you're, you're handing them the ball and letting them run with it and watching them do something spectacular. Right. Yes. Um, uh, that is, uh, that's where, you know, everything is clicking. And when it's not happening, I think 80% of the time it's, it's 
your fault. Like, yeah, right. Yeah. It's your fault. <laughs> no, 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 not your fault specifically, no, but, but 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 my fault. Like I I, I have not adequate. I, I have not given my collaborator the tools right. he or she needs to 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 run with the ball. Right. No, and and yeah. I've been in. I know. I'm sure you guys have. You've been in that chair both ways when you're doing it successfully and when you're not yeah. doing it successfully. And when you're not doing it successfully, suddenly it's a lot more work. That's what I always notice. Yeah. I'm like, you're fixing everything. You're going back. You're you know, but. I right now, I mean, I'm like the collaboration I'm having with Anna has been really great. You know, it's like I know that I'm sending her the right information, giving yep. her the right, you know, references and everything, because what I'm getting back is what I want and more because yep. she's adding to it. And so, yeah, that's, you know, it is the it is more work when you're doing it wrong. That is for sure. Well, and, you know, the, yeah. when you when Rylan, when you say, you know, it's it's quote unquote my fault, it's also. It's like acting, I. I almost never blame a performer for what I consider to be a bad performance yeah. because someone else thought they were right for the part and maybe they weren't. And maybe, and there are parts an actor should not play. They do not have the equipment to play that part. And if you don't know that that's on you. And the second part is you stood next to the camera and called cut. Let's move on. We've got it. Yeah. Uh, and that's what you put in your film. And if it was print, bad, print take three. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if that was bad, that is, that is a you problem. Not, not mm -hmm. an, cause I've seen great actors give, I always think about, uh, I think Diane Lane is a fabulously talented actress in the first scene in a perfect storm. She's staring out a window waiting for Mark Wahlberg to come back from, from C nervously and she 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 bites her the the her knuckle of her index finger and it is the most fifth grade school play gesture i have ever seen a great actress do in a movie and i just watching it took me so completely out of the movie because all i could hear was wolfgang peterson going no no i need to see more ang bite your i don't know wolfgang man that just seems like no 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 it'd be great we can do one your way but i'll I really need you biting your finger, Diane. This would be fantastic. And it's like, I can't, I can't blame her for that. I, you know, maybe someday I'll meet her and she'll say, oh no, no, I love that. Wolfgang hated it, but I made it, put it in the movie. But the odds are really, really strong that that is not <laughs> how that played out. Uh, you mentioned in passing uh, your current work. So tell us a little bit about Mary Shelley. Um, well, Mary, Mary Shelley School for Monsters is my new graphic novel series. Um, so the first one is called La Llorona and the Machine. And so basically the whole premise of it is, is that a young Mary Shelley goes into a graveyard. She comes across an occult mad scientist and he has kidnapped the evil book of the dead, the Necronomicon, except it's more cute and cuddly. She tries to rescue it and it, she touches it. It's still very powerful and it splits her into two versions of herself. One that is goes on to be the human Mary Shelley who writes Frankenstein who we know and then the other is the protagonist of the series which is Shell and she's a immortal teenager who rescues other monsters kind of all of the X-Men so there's a lot of X-Men inspiration in it um and brings and tries to bring them back you know goes and rescues them and they either come back to the school and become part of the school or they go on and and do their thing so yeah I'm having a lot of fun we uh we did a Kickstarter. We did two Kickstarters for that one, actually. Um, and then it came out in July. Um, people are really liking it. Um, and we're halfway through the second book, which is exciting. And, you know, we're going to do, we're going to Japan 
Um, so we're bringing um, a couple new monsters. Um, so that's a lot of fun. And um, yeah, it's just, and you know, she's, she's a big, like Anna has a, Anna Weistrack has, has kind of the style that's part manga, part Western. It's kind of a blend of the art forms. And so she really likes Japanese monsters. So kind of Great. went in that direction first. So yeah. And the, yeah. the first volume was how many pages or how many chapters? Um, it was, it's like 114 pages. So okay. it's, it's a sm shorter graphic novel and it is probably would be considered a novella in like, you know, um, but, and then the next one's like going to be 125 pages and yeah, it keeps growing. It's all budget related <laughs> more than sure. <laughs> how long I would really like it to be, but yeah. So, yeah. Sure. and then hopefully we'll do four of them. So oh, like, okay. right. Yeah. And right now, um, you know, I've talked to a couple bigger publishers about, you know, taking it to a larger, just, you know, larger size. So I'm working on that. And, but right now I'm just enjoying writing it and getting yeah. out to people. And the process has been great. It's so weird because she lives in Poland. So we only email each other. So it yeah. is a lot of like, you know, we do have to have a lot of things to reference, you know, images I sent her. Um, we luckily just both have a love of monsters and dived pretty deep, deep into that. And, you know, I started doing a Substack that's just all about monsters. So I just write about a different monster each week, which is a lot of fun and also research. So, yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. sure yeah. Of course. I mean, and yeah, the, the thing about working with any collaborator is obviously, even if you didn't have a con uh, complementary language going in, you develop one over yes. time as they, you know, if you, they, you give them notes and they <laughs> see those notes and they go, oh, okay, he likes this. She likes this. They want. Yeah. They want it mm -hmm. like this. So now I remember next time. Yeah. Do, there was this DP I made, a, you know, dozens of things with. And, you know, the third time you reframe a close up and go, no, I like it a little bit more like this. Any DP worth their salt goes, okay, that's how I'm going to frame close ups when I'm working yes. with you forever. Cause apparently this is, this is the framing you like. This is the weighting of the frame that you like. This is the size that you like, all that kind of thing. You know, and sometimes but, that goes the opposite way because the oh, times absolutely. that you know I'll write a, a page in the script and like after the third or fourth time I'm like she's not gonna she's not gonna do the panels like that she's gonna do the panels like this <laughs> so, and and there must and you know what it's fine and it, it's if, as long as it's making it better and not worse so you know I, and that's actually the fun of it I, I I do love how that that you know the communication evolves I mean one of my go-to colorists is in Indonesia. And, um, you know, he doesn't speak any English, uh, you know, everything's going into Google Translate and coming out. And um, but but we have worked together so long and on so many things that I can literally say, hey, give me a number one here. Give me a number three. Give me the blue look. Give me the sunset look. Yeah. Um, you know, we we, we we just have it and I don't need it. And, and you know, it, it, it even like, you know, um, not with him. Uh, let me make that, but there have been collaborators that, uh, that, that, that maybe I've gotten to the point where it's like, ah, well, maybe I should change this up. Um, but that it takes so long, uh, it takes so many reps to get into a rhythm like that with someone yeah. that, 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 that sometimes that will save the working relationship because it's like, well, how long, if I hire a new person, uh, you know, and let's say, uh, let's say we can end up with a, a better product in the end, even how long is it going to take me to get there to yeah. establish the, the foundation of communication necessary? Uh, um, you know, and, and when are we finally going to have that ease of communication where I can say, give me a number two. Mm -hmm. 
So, so, so that's amazing. And then, it, you know, again, I mean, what you're talking about, you have this artist in Poland and, and, and I don't know, I don't know how much English uh, 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 she speaks, but, but I mean, that's where I'm at too, where it's like, I, I mean, I love how this is this global thing. I mean, I, yeah. I try, I tried to do comics when we were at Michigan. Yeah. Um, but at that point, you know, uh, the drawings were physical. You had to know somebody in your town, basically. It, it was impossible to do revisions. They were a pain in the ass. Um, it was so hard, but it is so easy now, right? It's, um, yeah, it's different now. Yeah, yeah. and, and you, it, you know, everything's digital. You know, you trade huge files over Dropbox. You pay via PayPal. You're, you're, you're only emailing. And so, so yeah, yeah. artists working for me in, 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 in Hungary, in Mexico, in, mm-hmm. uh, in, in Brazil, um, in Indonesia, my go-to letterers in, in, in the UK. Um, it, it is it, it is amazing how far we have come in such a, a short period of time and yeah. and, and how, how I don't want to say easy. I, I, I want to say how easy this is to do now because it's not easy. I mean, yeah. anybody that's done this knows that, it, that, it, that it's, 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 it's like a curb stomp, uh, but it is more and more possible. Again, it is, it is seeing clerks and seeing and saying, hey, if they're doing it, I can do it. Yeah. Well, and we're going to tell you, you can do it. Yeah. Well, yeah. you go back to the time when we were in college and you were doing short films and collaborating with other artists. And, you know, I was I, in college, I was trying to do a poetry art book with an artist and everything was just more physical. Yeah. And so you had to really, you know, if you're going to do, it was more expensive. It was more physical. It was more like you really had to work and work at those connections in a different way. And it's not like it's, it's, it is easier in that, especially if you're doing film, it's easier, you know, the going through the process of having made short films from college on, and then a short film and some music videos when I came out here and then some low budget projects, even just like through that, those decades and like from just the last five years, like making a feature film now you can do relatively affordably you know if you really want you know compared to just five years ago just to 10 years ago exactly (laughs) you could do it on your iphone and it's it's like it 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 would have been interesting to have all that at your disposable disposal when you were in college um and exciting and exciting like you know because bad i was shooting my college films on like actual film yeah yeah 60 millimeter film yeah i'm just like what are we're all making the most ridiculous films what the fuck are we doing Area, yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, I enjoyed every single film I made in college, but yeah. we were making some ridiculous things. Even, and, even um, yeah, yeah, even when I was at AFI, you know, and, yeah. and it was very important that we shoot our our, our thesis films on thirty five millimeter film, yeah. and we and we all had to go down to Kodak and have that yeah. meeting and beg for a student discount, and um, and and, and, and yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't too long after that that it's like you know. Yeah, yeah uh, that, that Kodak was bankrupt and that everybody in every film school was making things digitally yeah. and on their goddamn phones and everything. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's it's pros and cons, right? Pros and cons. Yeah. But I yeah. do yeah. think it's much more inclusive now. Uh, there's a lot more access to it. Yeah. Um, you can make a film and you don't you you can could possibly have a film career now without being here, you know, in Los Angeles. Like in yeah. obviously you can. And so or at least make your film and do a quality one possibly. Yeah. And so like, I, I think it's a lot of good things came out of it. Um, it's still hard to tell a good story. Yeah, no, that the we've, tools all, we've all messed that up a few the, times. Well, and the, and the tools don't, the, the tools don't make the artist, yes. uh, it, but it's great that people who wouldn't have had, <laughs> I mean, I got us, you know, I was in college in 
83 to 87. Yeah. And I could afford to make maybe a film a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I made some little things on Super 8 or whatever, but like yeah. the 16 millimeter films, it cost a lot of money. And yeah. I had a I had a fellow student who was a kid from Beverly Hills who had a bunch of he made he made films all the time, and it had nothing to do with our relative merits as filmmakers. He just had the resources yeah. to make as many films as he felt like, and all of the things that were the financial aspects of it, that's all gone now. Mm-hmm. Like the sixteen, if I wanted to shoot on sixteen millimeter, that would still be the same, but the yeah. films I would have been able to make with my iPhone instead of literally burning through $250 every three minutes of film, you know, for stock and processing and negative and, you know, all that it's, it's, it's an appalling amount of money. And -hmm. where I went to college, none of that was like the equipment would be given to you for free, but film was, there was no way around processing in film. That was what it was. You know, they offered some at, uh, they offered some at discount, but, it wasn't and, and my department which was small we had about between 20 and 50 people on it in it depending on the year we had one airflex bl we had one camera with which you could shoot sound film for 50 people you know the rest mm-hmm. of us were shooting you know super 8 or uh, bolex and and post syncing it and doing and again an appalling amount of time and energy to do that kind of thing you know, so it's a, you know, it, nothing about it is ever easy, but you can definitely say that all of this is a thousand times easier. Uh, yes. But, but none of it will make you a, a storyteller or an artist. Yes. What will make a difference, though, it's funny. I always say that um, Francis Ford Coppola protected, predicted Robert Rodriguez. In the, there's a, a, a coda to the documentary hearts of darkness mm-hmm. uh, where they ask Coppola about the future of film. And he says home video and home editing systems and camcorders, you're going to end up with someone who's like the Mozart of film. Cause when I was a little kid, you j- you couldn't make a film that yeah, was look anything like a professional film. Yeah. He's like some kid's going to come along and with daddy's camcorder is going to make, you know, feature films. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you read Rodriguez's Rebel Without a Crew, Such a he literally yeah. talks about shooting with Daddy's camcorder. Like some, like everyone says, El Mariachi is his first film. He had made hundreds of films on VHS yeah. and Bad-headed. edited them on a home yeah. system and all of that stuff that was not available to you and me. Uh, but he's just in that first generation where there's home filmmaking experience, equipment that isn't crazy expensive. Yeah, uh, you know, and I think that's the you'll see more and more of that. But again, just like with Kickstarter and just like with comics, there's still a lot of delusional people who aren't very good at it out there. And now they can now they have access to the tools. So and well, that's and fine. That's, that's, <laughs> that's freedom, baby. Well, that's I mean, that's the true problem with freedom, I guess, is that yeah. the market gets oversaturated um, yeah. with lots of content, which is just we're such a content driven society which is terrifying like we need, we need more and more content and we have to create robots so they can make our content <laughs> you know we just need to consume it constantly and i mean as a like as an author you know that's 
is a problem. Like, you know, yeah. I just finished, I just finished the third book in my trilogy um, and the hardcover and paperback are actually coming out December 13th um, for the plastic. The day, of this, the day that this will drop. That's yeah. very, that's very, very, very interesting. And then, but yeah, so, and I'm so excited to have finished it. Um, and, but, you know, you look at the market of books and it's just like, overwhelming when you try to market your book, when you try to get it up there, whether it's traditionally published, whether it's self-published, whether it's a hybrid, it's, there's so much. Yeah. And just as a reader, it's overwhelming. And of course we have to rely on lists and, you know, best of and all this, because you just get to a point where you're like, I can't consume all of this. Yeah. And so one thing I've really enjoyed about comics in general is that it really, I mean, I already was doing indie filmmaking, but like, getting in touch with it, indie, you know, independent publishers, independent creators, you, you get to, you get to figure out who's good and bad, obviously, and what stories are good and bad, but you, you get to find out, hear these new voices, like new stories that you might not hear traditionally, you know, and although God streaming opened that up too. So it, it's kind of crazy, <laughs> but we used to have a very limited amount of kind of stories that were being shown and told. And so I've, it really enjoyed trying to I really jumping into the indie comic world. And, mm -hmm. but I do find it overwhelming. Like, you know, and I used to yeah. people in cons walking by just looking glazed over, like they're just trying to process all this amazing art, amazing, cool stuff coming at them. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's part of the challenge because you make something and you have like, for me with plastic girl, it's like, I had a world, I, something I really wanted to talk about, which is climate, you know, but I wanted to do it in a YA you know, science fiction, get into like magic, mythology, uh, biotech, all of it. You know, I wanted to just do all this stuff. And, um, you know, it's very niche and weird. And I'm very happy I wrote it because it's what I went to college to write, you know, was that kind of science fiction. I mean, I remember I went to college and I wanted to write, I wanted to write the next neuromancer, like whatever that was for my time. Right. <laughs> and I didn't know what that was yet. Cause it's like, what, what were we experiencing? And, um, by the time I got to this age, it was climate. Climate is the thing, you know, for me. But now we've got AI. And it, I, I don't know. It's, it, but it's, I'm, I'm rambling now, guys. But, yeah, you know, it's like just, um, yeah, it's trying to have a voice in, the, in these markets and be seen and have your things be read. Um, and also being able to find the new artists and the new yeah. creators and with, this avalanche of content and that's and i do think that's why ai is so scary is because it's just going to be it's not so much the the theft which sucks it's just going to be it's just more on top of that that avalanche. more snow on the mountain more snow yeah. on the mountain and trying yeah. to figure out how to break through that and, yeah. and somebody peed in that snow it's yellow snow yes, it's yellow yeah. snow which none of us want <laughs> that's i like thing. the fact that now yeah. most ai art has like an unmistakable look to it yeah that they haven't been able to beat out of it uh sort yeah. of a photo <laughs> a, a sort of creepy photorealism to it yeah and it'll be sad when that goes away and you can't just fucking spot it right away like yeah. they've almost fixed the fingers thing i remember when every ai art had like the people had nine fingers each they hadn't or 20 yeah. fingers each like i hadn't figured out for some reason that human beings have 10 fingers um but it's a it's an you know, and the, I've heard people say, no, man, it's a great tool. And I'm like, you know, if you want to use that, you just go right ahead. But I don't, you know, I don't, uh, you know. Uh, 
it, it, you know, to me using tools like that to write, I don't even use like, uh, oh, what are those? Like, what is that thing called? Scribe? There, there's a program that like, oh, to help you outline your, helps you outline or plot. Yeah. And I'm like, that's the job, man. Like, that is you the know, job. That is the that's job. not, you know, I will, I will pay it to, to, to rake my lawn. I don't want to pay it to do the thing that I enjoy. Like, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. I don't. Well, it's cause it, it does, you know, as much as it can help you, it can like hinder you because you might, it doesn't allow you to make the weird turn that you would, right. you would do through the process. I mean, I was just talking to a student who was using it for her, you know, like to prove something. And, you know, the thing that's scary about it is AI doesn't necessarily like have a moral code of like how it uses content it's pulling in to help you with your content. So right. like an AI could plagiarize helping you proof your thing by bringing in, you know, like by copy editing your stuff and using somebody else's stuff it's learned from you know what i mean and, and it's copy yeah. editing it and then it 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 becomes someone else's work by yeah. using a tool that and and, and, it do, and, and again yeah it doesn't hard, know it doesn't it, it it doesn't get context at all and you know that yeah. i i'm trying to remember the example but some you know someone did an ai uh written article about i think it was about swords Mm -hmm. And because of what's about swords on the internet, 80% of the article, which was supposed to be all about the history of edged weapons in the real world, was about Dungeons and Dragons. Because that was the information it could find yeah, about swords on the internet. It was like, so a scimitar will only give 20 points of damage, whereas a saber will give 14 <laughs> points of damage. And I'm like, I don't think that's the actual history of edged weapons, guys. I don't I don't think in the Civil War they were they were rolling dice uh, of how much is that saber going to hit me? Uh, you know, so it's... Uh, well, and it's very true because, like, when I research monsters, some of the monsters I'll research, they're very popular maybe in Dungeons & Dragons. And then it will... You'll get so much from that, just from the game, and mm -hmm. not the actual mythology or folklore. Yeah. And you have to, like, dig deeper to get that. So if you're just using an AI to help you base... Do your base research, you just have to sift through a lot of D&D like game gaming things yeah. instead of first, like what you want to do. The yeah. first time I realized how these models fail, mm -hmm. I was reading an article online about the absolute boondoggle that is the F-35 fighter plane. Yeah. And every ad on this page that it served me, which was an article from some, you know, military magazine, but the ads on the page were like, buy this awesome book about how great the F-35 fighter plane is. Posters of the F-35 fighter, fighter plane are available. Like, yeah, I don't think anyone reading this article wants to buy a poster of the F-35 fighter plane. Like, this is, a, this is an article about how it sucks, and you're trying to sell me a model kit of it or a yeah. paperweight yeah. of it on the page because Google doesn't know this is yeah. the anti F thirty five page, you know. I don't know. Like, I, I, I I like a good disaster, so uh, so maybe yeah. I'll buy one of those. Models. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> but it, but it was a real, it was it was a real education in like, oh right, this is. It, it reminds me, Patton Oswalt used to do the thing about uh, Netflix recommendations. Oh yeah, it's like you watch a movie with a horse in it. And then it's recommending you. He's like, it's like telling a five-year-old you like a horse. And then it's like, horsey, horsey. Oh, that's all this you're is, getting. This has got horsies in it. It's like, no, man, that's that. I don't want to. I didn't click on that. <laughs> I don't want that. 
For you sure. know that, but you know, sometimes then again, you look at the. Sometimes I look at the recommendations on, you know, Amazon, and I'm like, Amazon knows me better than a lot of my friends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Amazon knows me, yeah. but but luckily I research on Amazon, and I always forget to um, follow that rule where you you use the server that is not going to mess up your luck. You know, and so right. I'm like, so I'll do research, and so Amazon thinks I want some books that I don't really want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah for no, sure. I, but, I did. I, I yeah. had one of those those classic traps where, for a shadow comic, I did. I was mm -hmm. looking up American Nazi movements of the 1930s. Oh, no. and, yeah. You know, researching and worse yet, I was researching like, what do the uniforms look like? What are the mm -hmm. iconography? And like, for a year, my search results were just like, hey, don't you like Nazis? We thought, yeah, here's some more Nazi shit for you. I'm like, <laughs> don't forget about the Nazis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't, don't forget about the Proud Boy rally uh, tomorrow yeah. and Encinitas. Nazis of Mein Kampf discounted on bookshop.com. I'm like, no, oh God, I do not want to read Mein Kampf uh, just because I was looking up the German-American Bund. But uh, yeah, so, you know, there is a little bit both the anti and pro AI sides are engaging in a science fictional idea of what it is currently capable of. Of course. You know? And, and we it's interesting because we talk about AI so much more than we talk about like CRISPR and biotech and everything like yeah. that, which I think is by far more fascinating. Um, yeah. But, you know, and it's like what I think the article that came out today was that they're finally releasing the first sickle cell, you know, treatment that is based on that kind of research, like that genetic yeah. modification. And, I mean, it's exciting and fascinating, but it's also like, there's just so many different ways that can go as well. And oh, like just the current, I mean, I, I read the Jennifer, you know, Jennifer Donna uh, biography and it was just, it was so, so good. And like, just, just about the whole history of genetics. And then it, when and CRISPR is one of my most, I'm so fascinated by CRISPR and gene splitting and, you know, and, and what we could do with it possibly to help our planet help ourselves but like what we could do just to like as a sci-fi writer i'm like just to blow it all up as well we could <laughs> sure yeah. well there's that great the great torment nexus joke yeah which people can you know the, the thing on twitter it's like you know scientists announced they finally built the torment nexus from the best-selling <laughs> hugo award-winning science fiction novel please god do not build the torment nexus <laughs> Uh, you know, and the, my favorite example of that is Netflix doing Squid Game as a game show. It's like it's so crazy. talk about just not getting the memo on what the show was about. Here's our thing about how reality shows and game shows are demoralizing, inhuman nonsense. Let's make a game show out of it. And and it, it is and then people are getting and then there's like reports about people getting hurt. I'm like, of course they're getting hurt. Like that's not, what do you You built the Torment Nexus and made it a TV Torment Nexus the series. Like, yeah, great. Thanks so much for that. No, it's a that that is definitely a classic of the genre. And I I also I've said this before, but when people reference 1984 in our current oh yeah world, I'm always like, you know what didn't happen? The thought police didn't come into your home and scan in all those childhood photos and set them on Facebook. You did that for them. Yeah. And all... your telescreen has an off button that Winston Smith would have fucking killed to be able to delete his Facebook profile. He couldn't. You know, mm -hmm. he couldn't turn off the screen in his apartment. That's yeah. 1984. You fuckers all signed up for this. You know, you all decided it was better to know where the closest Starbucks was 
than to have the NSA not constantly know where you are at all times. <laughs> like oh, that's yeah. the, the minute, when I got my first smartphone and turned on location services, I'm like, remember to throw this thing in the ocean before you commit crimes, though. Of course, <laughs> you know? yeah, don't, like, don't commit crimes with your smartphone. I yeah, don't. don't. If you're doing anything, you I, yeah, I remember the. I mean, that's the whole serial podcast right there. You know, just don't have your phone with you yeah. when you're. There well, you <laughs> I remember when they first the the whole fast pass system where you put a transponder on your car, yeah. car and it pays tolls for you. When they introduced that in, I think it first was in the New York metro area. I just was like, so basically, the system knows where you are at all times when you're in your car. And I remember a year later, there was an episode of Law and Order where uh, Lenny Briscoe walks in with a sheet of paper and says, so Fast Track has him crossing the Tappan Zee Bridge at five o'clock. And I was like, there it is. There, there it is, man. I, I knew that's what that was for, was so yeah. that the cops could find out where you were driving on Friday night when you said you were at home in your apartment. Although the abilities of the police on Law and Order and tele and movies oh, in general sure. are like far exceed, I think, the abilities. Well, of but our but as far as I would say, I as far as as TV yeah. cops go, there's actually a degree of realism to Law and Order over and oh, above. Yeah. I actually thought Law and Order was going to make it impossible to do a show like CSI. Yeah. Where lab technicians from the CSI unit go out and are detectives and solve crimes. Because that does not happen on any planet yeah, exactly. any human, <laughs> humans have ever lived on. Uh, and yet, I was like, I thought we weren't doing Quincy now that we have law and order saying, yeah, those people don't investigate crimes, though, in any way, shape, or form. They hand test results to cops and go back to the basement. Yeah. And that's well, my do. favorite thing they do in television and movies is whenever they enhance an image. That's always my favorite. We're going to enhance that image. Get that... Yeah. Well, that get zoom into that image. Yeah. Can you clear that up? Yeah. Can you clear that up? Give me a second. Yeah. We're, we're not quite there yet, but in the I always loved in Blade Runner that Harrison Ford's computer understands all sort of idiomatic. Oh yeah. You know, he's like moving a little closer. You know, but he doesn't. Just, he's not just saying enhance. He's like track right. No, go yeah. left. It's like. Oh, it understands all sorts of human speech. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's human now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, whereas I have trouble getting my Roku to turn the TV on, you know, mm -hmm. without, you know. And if anyone says two syllables in a TV show that sounds a little bit like Roku, my Roku will pause the store, the show and say, I'm sorry, I didn't quite get that. Oh, my gosh. I have so much. I try to turn most of that off because yeah. I can't. I hate things to I know everyone likes to talk to things and tell them. I just don't like the things listening to me. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, but that always drives me crazy because my car, I have a new car now and it does that. It's like we start talking and it's like, wait, what, what are you guys talking about? Like, no, I'm like, no, we don't want you. We don't, we're not, yeah. you're not in the conversation. Not listening, car. <laughs> the, other, the other thing I will say, and I, you know, not a fan of the surveillance state, but on the other hand, the wild narcissism of thinking the NSA has a guy available to listen yeah. to your phone yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, they're not listening like i'm sorry you're, you're, not, you're, you're not that interesting <laughs> you actually kind of have to get their attention first by committing a crime yeah. or being on the phone with someone who's committing a crime and then they'll start listening to your phone calls exactly uh, but the idea that there's just a million guys with headsets on going okay now they're talking about squid game uh <laughs> you know it's like no that's really 
uh, it is going to. And even the data that they are collecting, they do record it, but it's, I don't think they keep it indefinitely. So it would, again, the server farm that would be required to. My favorite thing about. The amount of water and electricity. Yeah. (laughs) My my favorite AI thing in the history of this particular discourse is I went to see them, and this is a while ago. I went to see the movie Terminator 3, literally, Rise of the Machines. Yeah. I bought my tickets online. I went to the movie theater where there were the kiosks to get your movie theaters. There was a person standing there with paper tickets going, oh, yeah, all the computers are down. Let me just give you. And I'm like, I am somehow no longer concerned about the rise of Skynet. Uh, Skynet Skynet is failing to sell me a fucking movie ticket to its own movie. I think the nukes are maybe safe for the next yeah. you know couple of years until they get this movie theater ticket thing worked out. Relatively safe from the Schwarzenegger kill robots. Uh, oh my gosh, for so sure. Until, and so speaking of Terminator, Terminator Three is how I met my I met my husband on that movie. So that's kind of oh cool. really? Did you yeah, both yeah. work on it? I didn't work on it. My roommate worked on it with him, and I oh. was I worked I was more of a CA development. TV writer person. And then, oh, okay. so that, yeah, but he worked on Terminator 3 and we, we met at a birthday party, but we got together um, at the rap, at the rap party. Nice. Wow. Yeah, rap yeah. parties are very sexy. Everybody. Yeah, they that. are very sexy. They are, they are, rap parties are notoriously <laughs> sexy. So I. They convince I you to have children with people. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> no, not from that rap party. Calm down, everyone. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, right. We should yeah. we should wrap up. We're getting okay. to the end, but uh, Jessica, tell oh, we, we, we we all have a sexy rap party to get to. So yeah, <laughs> I'm definitely going to a sexy rap party. Yeah. Yeah. Jessica, tell everyone where they can find you and about your books, which came out today. Okay. Um. Well, you can find me at wickedtreepress.com um, on Instagram and Facebook on Wicked Tree Press, or you can find me on Substack, um, Monster of the Week. Um, Eradication and the Plastic Girl trilogy um, can be found at Amazon or any other retail. Um, stores um and yeah that's it basically nice and ryland uh i am at ryland grant on all forms of social media uh if you are just listening that is r-y-l-e-n-d-g-r-a-n-t i always have to spell it because it's not a real name my parents just drunkenly arranged letters and saddled me with it and so now i have to spell it for you um but yeah uh you can you can find me on the interwebs on the social medias all of that stuff um, as I said, I, I think you still have a few days to get over to Kickstarter and check out the Fashing Origins uh, uh, number two, um, which is part of the Immortal Studios uh, Kickstarter uh, with a bunch of other cool comics by folks like Charlie Stickney and Jen Troy, some of my favorite people. So check that out. If you're listening to this after the new year, you should be able to uh, uh, find the pre-launch page uh, and and follow uh, my latest Kickstarter, my latest personal Kickstarter, Issues 3 and 4 of The Peacekeepers, which is my Fargo-esque crime drama, so go check that out. Um, yeah, other than that, you know, if uh, we don't see you before uh, the holiday, have a great one. Yes, indeed. Happy, happy Kentmas, happy Kryptonica to those listening now. That's my, I have a Superman-based religion, uh, you know, I, don't, I, I talk about it about once a year. Um, and I, we are recording this on the second night of Kryptonica. Oh, wow. Where we, where we celebrate the, uh, you know, the, the culture that gave rise to uh, our secular messiah, Clark Kent. Uh, Kal-El, if you, if you know him from, from hometown. Um, I can be found at davidavalonefreelance.com, a uh, haphazardly updated website. 
but it does uh, branch out to all of the things. I'm on all of social media as, e as either David Avalone or D Avalone. Uh, the nice thing about having an unusual name that you could get easily made fun of for in grade school is now everyone can easily find you on Google. Take that, Tom Callahan. Um, thank you very much for joining. That was my school bully. No one can Google him. Uh, too, many Tom <laughs> too many times. He literally was Nelson Muntz. I have to tell, like, literally, vest and everything. Totally that guy. <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> and it actually has given me, Nelson Muntz gave me a little, like, post-sympathy for Tom Callahan looking back as time went on. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Thank you, Jessica, for coming out and talking to us. Uh, it was a great pleasure. And we'll see you all in the new year. Thanks, guys. Thanks. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more Madcap Hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.